Hello Convention of States podcast listeners. This is our weekly podcast featuring historic legacy content from our audio archives. We hope you are educated and inspired by this week's episode. In this speech from November of 2022, Convention of States Action President Mark Meckler speaks at a town hall in Hawaii. Please welcome Mark Meckler. Okay, so uh, before we start, I just, I prefer not to use this. Can you guys hear me back there okay? So, you know, I always say that I have a loud voice. My wife disagrees with that. She just says I have a big mouth. So (laughs) by the end of the night, you guys can decide for yourselves which it is. Okay, it's really a great honor to be here with you guys. As I was driving into the neighborhood tonight, I realized, okay, I've been here before. I've been to this location. We did this a few years ago. It's been a few years because of all the COVID craziness that went on. And I want to tell you a story, just kind of give you a little bit of of who I am, a little bit of how I tend to operate. You know, for a living, I travel all over the country. I've been in 48 states in the last few years. I've been in the state capitals in most of the states, working in the legislatures. So I travel a lot. It's funny, when you travel a lot, if you talk to people who don't travel a lot, and you tell them, oh yeah, you know, I, I was on Delta and I flew first class over, you know, I got an upgrade on, on flying over, or I get to sit in the lounge before people are like, oh, that's so fancy. And I think, I tell them, no, it just means I spent 250,000 miles sitting on my butt in an airplane, right? And so travel's not the glamorous thing maybe that it used to be, but when I was traveling through all the COVID stuff, and I didn't travel as much, but I was still traveling, one of the things that I found as I traveled around the country that kind of freaked me out as I was traveling is that I would go into the airports, and when I went into an airport, I wouldn't wear a mask in the airport. And they would play the recording in the airport that said, you know, if you're not wearing a mask, it's a $3,000 fine. It's federal law that you have to wear a mask in there. By the way, there's no federal law that says that you have to wear a mask. There was a mandate from Joe Biden, right? An unconstitutional mandate. So look, I had to wear the mask on the airplane because otherwise they won't let you, wouldn't let you on the airplanes back then. But when I would go into an airport, I'd go through TSA. I generally wouldn't put my mask on. Sometimes the TSA would say, sir, do you have a mask? I'd fumble in my pocket. Oh yeah, I got a mask. It's all, I'll see you later. (laughs) And if they would let me, I'd just go straight through and I never wore a mask in the airports. And so I would travel all over the country and be in the airports. It's a weird experience. It's like being in some kind of weird dystopian science fiction novel because every other person in the airport's wearing a mask, right? So I'm the only guy with the bald face in the airport. And I walk around and I'm usually wearing a shirt that says some kind of obnoxious conservative thing on it, right? And so it's pretty obvious what my politics are. And people would walk by me and they'd be like, hey, I like your shirt. And if people said that, then I knew that they were conservatives. And I would usually say, oh, cool, do you know, this is where you get it. It said Convention of States. And I'd engage in a conversation with them. And during the conversation, at some point, I would say, you know, you don't need to wear a mask in the airport. (laughs) And their eyes would get like this big. Now, remember, I'm talking to conservative people, like who you would think would get this. And then I would say, seriously, I travel 250,000 miles a year. Nobody inside of an airport has ever asked me to put on a mask. 
Nobody's ever questioned me. Nobody comes up to you and threatens you. You can just do it. Take off your mask. Nobody would take off their mask. <laughs> Conservatives. And I'll tell you, it freaked me out. And the reason it freaked me out is because I thought, what are we? Are we a nation of sheepdogs or are we a nation of sheep? And what I was worried is we became a nation of sheep. And literally, I was living proof. I was showing people, you don't have to wear the mask. And they would still wear the mask. They were too scared. They might offend somebody. So, I mean, what was going to happen? Somebody's going to ask them to put a mask on. How horrifying is that? And it really scared me as I was traveling around the country. So I thought, you know, am I the only rebel? So I'm traveling around. I'm doing this all over the country. And I decided, well, I got to show people that you can do this. And so I started filming myself in every airport I went in and I'd walk through the airport and I'd say, I'm here in Orlando. I'm not wearing a mask. You don't have to wear a mask in the airport. Seriously, nobody will bother you. I'm here in Denver. I'm here in Los Angeles. I'm in New York and I'm wearing, I'm doing this all over the country, right? And my Instagram page starts getting all these hits on this and people start talking about it. I was at a, I go to a party. I'm at this party and some woman walks up to me and she goes, I know you. And I said, oh yeah, and I think she's gonna say Convention of States, right? And she goes, you're airport guy. <laughs> like, what? I've been doing politics 12 years. Now I'm famous as airport guy. It did really make me worried about the country though. You know, the country is in a dark place right now. Any, anybody disagree with that? We're really divided in the country, right? And I hear people say all the time, we're more divided than we've ever been. Yeah. It's really bad. Anybody feel that way? Yeah. Okay, it's like people hate each other. You, you know, you got the left hates the right. You got Christians and non-Christians. You got straight and gay, black and white. And everybody, like they're trying to make us hate each other. And it is bad in the country right now. I admit that. It's, you know, but I would say, and I think this is really important, and maybe this is something that you're not thinking about. I think whenever we live in a time, whatever that time is, that's the clearest time to us because it's the time in which we live. And if you're looking back 20 years or 50 years or 100 years or 200 years, we're looking through a very foggy lens. And here's what I'll tell you the reality is. If you study American history, we've always been divided. It's always been like this in the United States of America. And I wanna do a quick run through history because I want you guys to come away from this conversation feeling more positive. Look, is the country coming apart? Absolutely. But I'm gonna make a statement about the country coming apart that might surprise you. I think it's awesome. <laughs> and it's not because I'm a psychopath. I mean, I might be a psychopath, you, you can judge for yourself, but look, here's why I think it's awesome, because this is how America has always been. This idea that we're all the same, that everybody should be governed the same, that we all have the same ideas, that we all have to be the same, that's crazy. That's never been what America's been about. Look, if you go all the way back before the founding of the United States of America, go back to when it was just the colonies, and in the colonies, if you look the way the colonies felt about each other as colonies, they hated each other. <laughs> Literally, it was mostly Christian sectarianism. And so the Quakers hated the Baptists who hated, you know, so on down the line. And what they would do is they literally called each other blasphemers. 
And they didn't travel from colony to colony. Like we forget this, right? People stayed in their town. It was rare for somebody to travel to the next town. To go to a big city, if you lived in a small town in the countryside, most people never went to Philadelphia or New York or something like that. I mean, they had to travel on foot or by horse if they're wealthy, maybe by carriage. Most people certainly never went to another colony. So the idea of the difference between the colonies, it was more like the difference between countries, literally. And so they didn't know each other, so they distrusted each other. They really didn't like each other. And then something happened. There's a historic event, which is you get King George becomes an existential threat, right? And Parliament and the king start imposing their will on the colonies. And when that happens, the colonies join arms and they decide they're going to fight back against this. They're going to push back against tyranny from England. And so what they're going to do is they're going to fight a revolution. And you all know the story. They join arms. They fight this revolution. It wasn't easy. It's eight years of suffering and strife and bloodshed. And in the end, they're victorious. And America is created. The United States of America is created. And you would think after they got together and after they fought together and they're literally in the trenches and on the battlefields together, regiments from different states, after that's all done, they had formed this wonderful band of brothers who loved each other, who now had worked with people from other colonies. So when they formed a new country, of course, they all liked each other and they all got along, right? No, in fact, we know we have evidence how much they still hated each other. <laughs> because they formed the Articles of Confederation. And that was a form of government that was designed around the idea that you're from a different colony, so I don't trust you. You're from a different state, so there's no way I'm giving you any power over my state. I'm not gonna let you tax me. I'm not gonna let you raise an army. I'm not gonna let you regulate me. In fact, go back to your own state and leave me alone. And so they formed a government that was completely non-functional. And it didn't function and it fell apart and the country almost came apart, but they needed to be together. Why? And you're going you're gonna to follow this through line as I give this thing, existential threats. England was still an existential threat. France, actually our erstwhile ally was actually a threat. They would have loved to cash in the debt, take over the country and make it a property of France. Spain was an existential threat. So it was still a mess. And so they decided in 1787, it wasn't working. They couldn't function as a country and they needed to do something different. So they gathered in what we now know as Independence Hall and they're gonna get together and they're gonna work on that constitution. They're gonna try and find a new form of government. Now the good news is those men that came together in Independence Hall, they were so perfect and they were so gentlemanly that when they got together in that hall, they all just got along perfectly, right? No, that's not what happened. In fact, it was so bad that the records indicate that at least three times they almost disbanded the convention. They didn't like each other. They accused each other of all kinds of horrible stuff. Remember, this is an era where honor meant everything. People threatened each other. People were yelling at each other. You know, Ben Franklin calls for prayer because the whole thing's so rancorous. So you have a room full of men of egos, of personal greed and avarice, of conflicting visions for the country, and they fight and they argue and they yell at each other, and it goes till late at night and it almost falls apart. And out of an environment, in a hot, stuffy room in Philadelphia with a bunch of people who really don't like each other comes the finest form of government ever known to man for the preservation of liberty. They designed the Constitutional Republic. 
And it's a constitutional republic based around the idea of federalism. Federalism is an idea that says really at its essence, hey, look, we don't really like each other that much. We're really different. One state has a different idea than another state of how to be governed, about what its culture is like, about what the main religion is in that state, how they want to live. And so they don't want to give power to another state. But they also understand and recognize that there are existential threats in the world. And that if they don't get together for certain things, they are not going to survive as a young nation. There are existential threats and they have got to work together for a limited amount of things. Those things they called the enumerated powers. The original constitution contains 17 enumerated powers. The federal government will do these things and no more. The founders said that the powers granted to the federal government were limited and enumerated and those granted to the states were unenumerated and unlimited. So the people and the states get the majority of the power and the federal government gets very little, 17 powers, right? And so the good news is though, after that convention, everybody went back to their own states and they all decided to play nice in the sandbox and they all loved each other and they all got along for the rest of American history, right? Seriously, look at our history and I'm gonna shorten up the history. There's a lot of conflict in American history, but we loved each other so much that in the 1860s, we decided to have a civil war, right? The great stain on American history of slavery still existed. And we, it was so bad and such a stain in American history that we had to have a civil war to wipe it out, to remove it from the land. And at the end of the civil war, the people I believe who are on, obviously on the right side of that win and they force a union on the other half of the country. This is how much we love each other. Half of the country is forced to be in a country that they tried to leave. So we have this idyllic idea of e pluribus unum from many one. No, that's not this country. It's this country is full of people with different ideas in different regions in different states. And federalism allows that to work. So after the Civil War, the Civil War is fought. The Civil War is settled. You have Reconstruction. Now the good news is in American history, after the Civil War, everybody just gets along perfectly for the... <laughs> Are you getting the theme here? It's always been a mess. Look, there's a lot of different people. It's a lot of different cultures in our country. People in Mississippi are not the same as people in New York who are not the same as people in Hawaii. And it's always been this way in American history. We have always been divided. Something happens that starts to change this in the 1940s, late 1930s into the 1940s, World War II, right? And World War II does something for the first time in American history, I would argue since the revolution, is the American people are united around a single cause. Everybody sacrifices. Everybody knows people, usually in their own family that went overseas and fought the war. Everybody knows people who died. People are recycling, people are buying savings bonds. There's real shared national sacrifice in World War I, or sorry, World War II. And when people come home, when the boys come home from World War II, everything changes in America. This is true. What happens is we're unified. You know the, the idea of the American dream, the house, the picket fence, the kids, that comes after World War II. 
That's where that comes from. This is the greatest era of prosperity in the history of America. Everybody's chasing the American dream. The economy grows, the country's healthy. I'm not saying everything's perfect and idyllic in the country, but this is a real time of unity in the United States of America. And so I would say if you picture America as the Liberty Bell, which I think is a really good symbol for America, the Liberty Bell, you guys have one here at the state capitol, it's a beautiful cast bell, but it does have a big crack in it, right? That's America. If you think of America as this beautiful cast bell, but there's always been a crack in it. And you know, when you have a bell with a crack in it, that kind of relieves the pressure. It's got some flex in it, right? But after World War II, what happens is we start to kind of paper mache over the crack. And we're like, you know what, maybe we are all the same. Shared sacrifice, we all did this together. Moving to the 1950s, and you get national media starts to really grow in the 1950s. We get the networks, ABC, CBS, NBC. And you know what that means? We all can watch the same television shows together. And I grew up, this is not my era, but I grew up watching the shows from that era. Yeah, Leave It to Beaver and Father Knows Best and The Honeymooners. And so what that means is you could literally, you could live in Hawaii, you could live in Florida, you could live in Mississippi, you could live in New York, watch the same television shows. Share a common culture, e pluribus unum, from many, one culture starts to grow. And that means you get another layer of paper mache over the Liberty Bell and you can't really see the crack anymore, but the cover's just thin. After that, you start to get major leagues start to develop, national major sports leagues, MLB, NHL if you're a hockey fan, NBA, NFL. Now we're rooting for teams together and we're cheering on our favorite teams and we got state rivalries and national rivalries, but we're all watching this stuff together. It's incredible. You get national brands that are advertised on national television. In the 1960s, you get franchising really comes onto the scene and comes into its own. Franchising means that I can drive from Biloxi, Mississippi to New York City. I can eat the same food. I can buy my gas at the same brand of gas station. I can buy my Lucky Strike cigarettes at every gas station so I can smoke in my car all the way there. And when I get there, I can stay in the same hotel. And so I'd go to New York City. Now I don't feel like a foreigner in New York City because I can still eat the same food by the same brands Maybe we are all one, right? So that's by the 1960s. Then, then you get into the 1970s in the United States, and if you're old enough to remember this, and I am, the 1970s are the era of unfettered, uncontrolled big government in Washington, D.C. Now here's a trivia question. In the 1970s, who is the champion of small government, limited government in Washington, D.C.? There isn't one. There literally isn't one. Nobody's talking about small government. Nobody's saying, wait, what? The government's too big. It wasn't supposed to. Everybody's, Nixon's president, and what does Nixon do? Nixon grows government, right? Nixon gives us new federal agencies. Nixon gives us the EPA, right? So today we think about that. Wait, a Republican giving us a giant new administrative agency? That doesn't seem right. But back then, there was nobody even questioned that. Like that was just the way it was. So in the 1970s, the era of unfettered big government. So we've reached the zenith. Why? Because we all share a culture. We watch the same movies. We watch the same sports leagues. We eat from the same restaurants. We're smoking the same cigarettes. So we're all the same. And so it makes sense to govern ourselves from one place. And that's what happens. Power starts to consolidate. This is where you get the phrase economy of scale. Well, I mean, it's bigger in Washington, D.C., and they can, they can do all this stuff big, so they save money doing it big, right? 
All the smart people can be there, right? <laughs> okay, so this is what happens. But along the way, before the 1970s, in the 1960s, something happens in our culture. You have the Vietnam War, right? And so you have the peace movement around the Vietnam War. And you have people in the streets that are actually attacking police officers. They're throwing Molotov cocktails. I mean, it sounds kind of like summer two years ago, right? And it's getting pretty crazy. There's psychedelic drugs, there's psychedelic music, there's half-naked people protesting in the streets. And what starts to happen is the schism in the culture starts to show itself again, right? And that Liberty Bell, that paper mache over that crack starts to tear and it starts to open up. And it's continued ever since. And so what happens is, if you go back to then, if I, was a, if I was an adult in the 1960s, I was a kid, if I was an adult watching this, from my perspective, look, I'm a 60-year-old, white, Christian, Bible-thumping, gun-toting, tea party guy. That's my perspective. If I was an adult back then, I would have looked out in the streets and thought, what in God's name is happening? Who are these people? I don't even understand this. And I know when I talk to people who were around back then, who were adults back then, or like me, that's what they were thinking. Well, that's continued to get worse in America, this cultural schism. This is how I look at the culture today in the United States of America. From my perspective, I just described to you who I am, sort of the broad labels that, that fit on top of me. And I look out in the culture, and this is what I see. Okay, I look out and I, on the abortion issue, I see people saying, like this is the platform now of the Democrat Party is, you can kill babies up to nine months in the womb, well, and maybe even after they're born. And I'm thinking, that's evil. That's really bad, horrible stuff. They're saying that boys can be girls and girls can be boys, and that we should cut the genitals off young kids to make them into the opposite gender, that we should chemically castrate them, that parents have no rights to know what their kids are learning in school, that there should be pornography in the school library, that we should teach little kids that the most important thing they can know about each other and judge about each other is the color of their skin. I mean, I, when I was growing up, literally, the ideas of Dr. Martin Luther King were taken for granted. Literally, I mean, it was like you, you would say, content of your character or color of your skin. Everybody knew the answer to that question. And today that's on its head. So I look out in the world today and I look at the opposing side, the left in America today, and I think, what the hell is going on? And I look at that and I think, look, that's not just bad, that's evil. And then I think this, I'm not sure I want to live in a country with those people. I'm not sure I can. Anybody feel that way sometimes? So I want to give you a different perspective. If you're a person on the left, and you all know people like this, they look at somebody like me or people, a room of people like us, and this is what they think. Those people are racists, they're homophobes, they're transphobes, they're misogynists, they're Islamophobes, they're Neanderthals, they're dangerous, they're insurrectionists, they want to destroy democracy. And they're thinking and saying, I'm not really sure I want to live in a country with people like that anymore. I'm not sure I can. So America is divided. Right? But I've showed you that America's always been divided. It's, there's never been really a long period of time in American history when we're not like this. Okay, so we come to this moment in American history. The question is, what do we do about that? There are two potential paths, as I see it. The great decoupling in the United States of America is taking place 
It's not going to stop. It's only going to get worse. And the question is, what's the end game? One path, and I hear people actually come to me and suggest this. Remember, I'm a pretty right-wing guy. I'm pro-gun and all this stuff. I'm going to defend my family if it comes down to it. But people are saying, you know, all we need is we need to have a civil war in America. We need secession. Look, I'm from Texas. People in Texas like to talk about secession. But I got to tell you, during the Trump years, people in California like to talk about secession too, the leftists. And so people talk about secession, they talk about revolution, they talk about civil war. You know, I saw a lot of people raise their hands who have served, who are actually veterans. There's probably combat veterans in this room. I didn't serve, I'm not a combat veteran, but I've talked to a lot of combat veterans. And I will tell you, if you say to a combat veteran, hey, all we need is a little civil war in this country, they'll look at you like you're out of your freaking mind. Because they know what that means. If you haven't been there, I've not been there, we don't know what that means. The closest thing I can show you, or I know I can know what it means, is I can look at what's happening in Ukraine today. And if you want to know what it looks like when a country is actually at war, a modern westernized country, watch the video footage from Ukraine. I'm talking dead children in the streets. I'm talking people bombed out of their houses and their apartment buildings. This winter, we're gonna see some really bad stuff in Ukraine. You're gonna see people freezing to death. You're gonna see famine in Ukraine. That's what civil war looks like. That's not a civil war going on there. There's an outside hostile power, but that's what it looks like. And so when people tell me, oh, Mark, you know, I'm all tough and I got all my guns and ammo. I mean, I probably got more guns and ammo, than them, but I don't want a civil war. No sane person wants a civil war. So if the solution isn't civil war, what is it? Well, some people say, well, it's secession, right? Now, I live in Texas. Texas thinks it's the biggest, best place in the country. It might be. I don't know. <laughs> but Texas, I mean, the idea of Texas seceding, it's ridiculous. Look, there are existential threats in the world. China is an existential threat in the world. Can Texas stand alone against China? Nope. Zero chance. No state can. There are other existential threats. We got the drug cartels on the border, which is now a fully militarized zone. These, the drug cartels now have their own armies with military style equipment. We got that. We've, we literally have radical Islam that's an existential threat. We have to stick together to fight those things. So people say secession. Here's another problem with secession. I'm from Texas. Texas we think of as a red state, right? Well, except for Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, El Paso, Austin, all the major cities in Texas are blue. So what do you do about that? Texas says, well, we're, we're a red state, we're gonna secede. Do you kick all the liberal people out of the big cities? Now, some of my friends in Texas would say yes to that. <laughs> it's not really a practical idea. You know, if you look at California, which is where I'm originally from, California is a very blue state, super majorities in the legislature. You guys are familiar with that. About 85% of California's geography is red state, right? So once you get about 50 miles inland, it's almost all red. The far north state, very libertarian, but inland, all red. How do you split that? So I don't think you can split the state. So secession is not viable. Civil war is not viable, but the country is coming apart. So what do we do? What's the solution if those things aren't the solution? 
And when I started thinking my way through this problem, this was, I did not have the conclusion in mind. It's gonna sound obvious, coming from me, it's gonna sound like I planned this out in advance. I didn't, I was just thinking about what do we do with the country coming apart? So if you've got civil war, revolution, secession, and those things won't work, then what's the answer? And all I thought was, well, the, I should look to the founders, right? They knew about this stuff. They knew what it was like to live in a divided country. They knew what it was like to have a bunch of states that couldn't get along and didn't like each other. So what did they do? Oh, wait, federalism, right? Their idea was if you really don't like each other and you really can't get along, well then just have the federal government do a very few things and give all the rest to the states and the people. Novel idea, huh? worked for a long time. We have the longest living constitution in world history, right? The average constitution lasts for 17 years. We're pushing 250 years with our constitution. And I would argue because of this idea of federalism, this kind of loose federation of people that don't force everybody to do one thing. And the only way that you get back to federalism in the United States of America, the only way, the one way, there is no other way is to hold a convention is to call a convention under Article 5 of the United States Constitution and propose amendments to take power away from the federal government. Remember I told you they have 17 enumerated powers? Well, now they have 17 million powers, right? The courts have mostly granted this power to the federal government. Federal government takes it, the court says yes and puts a rubber stamp on it. The only way to take that power back is to call a convention of states, to propose amendments to take power away from the federal government and give it back to the people in the states. In my opinion, that's the only way that the United States of America survives. Now, if we're about to have an election, and, you know, we always say most important election in American history. Yeah, well, this one is right. And I think each one generally successively are. And I think we're going to see if you're a conservative, we're going to see good results. And I'm not even talking party. We're going to see people who believe in liberty, who believe in freedom, who have more of a belief in limited government sweep into office. We're going to see a historic sea change in office. And then here's what's going to happen in Washington, D.C. I'm going to make a prediction. All right. It's pretty exciting stuff to see all this change that you're going to see governorships change. You're going to control the Senate's going to change, control the House is going to change. And then Washington, D.C., I predict, is going to be exactly the same. It'll slow down. The pace of decline will slow down. And I think that's a good thing. I don't want to say it's a bad thing. I'd rather see that happen. But they are not going to fix the problems. All we have to do is look at the history of our system of governance. If you go all the way back to the very first administration, the Washington administration, and go all the way through all of American history, all the way to today's administration, what you will find is every single administration in the history of the United States government has grown the size and scope of the administration with the exception of the Coolidge administration. And by the way, history looks at Calvin Coolidge as kind of a nothing president. Why? Because he didn't start any administrative agencies. He didn't build any huge projects. He actually believed in limited government. So he's not a famous president. So if that's the history, if it's always been this way, why would we expect anything different? Right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, three, four, five, 46 times. Shame on me. And so if we think that the election is gonna fix everything in this country. And don't get me wrong, we should vote, we should work for candidates, the good candidates in this room, we should support them. We gotta, that's our obligation. 
but that's not going to fix our problems. So we have an obligation to do something more. And the founders gave us this power in Article 5 of the Constitution. You know, I have a pretty vivid imagination, and I read a lot about the founders. I'm reading a great book that just came out about Sam Adams, such an interesting guy. One of my favorite founders, though, is Benjamin Franklin. And I love Benjamin Franklin. He was the oldest guy at the convention. This cantankerous old man, been a world traveler, which was really rare back then. You know, he's a doctor. He, God, he was just a total renaissance man. And I like to imagine sitting around with Ben Franklin, maybe grabbing a pint of ale in one of the old pubs in Philadelphia. And I, I imagine myself explaining to him all the problems we're having in America today. It'd be unimaginable to him. I can, can you imagine telling him about transgenderism? <laughs> oh my God. But it's simple things like, you know, the government tells us how much water we can use to flush our toilets. You imagine the government showing up at Ben Franklin's house. Uh, excuse me, Dr. Franklin, your outhouse? Really not built properly. <laughs> and so I think if we told Franklin everything that was going on and how the federal government had gotten so out of control and I'm sitting there with Ben and I said, Ben, we got all these problems. I think he would ask Article 5. Did you use Article 5? Because we put it in there unanimously. We didn't even debate it. We put it in there because we knew the time would come when you would need to get your hands around the throat of the federal government. So you used it, right? What happened? And I would have to say, yeah, well, you know, it's kind of hard to use it. And some people are scared of it. And, and I imagine him slamming that pint of ale down and saying, son, call me and tell me what's going on after you try to use Article 5. Until then, look, we gave you the tools. If you don't have the fortitude to use them, then I don't have the time for you. And I think we have an obligation to our forefathers, to the men and women and the families who sacrificed everything, not just in the American Revolution, but in all the time since, the people who stood and fought and were willing to give their lives. You know, I, there's a lot of veterans in this audience. Hawaii is full of veterans. I didn't serve. And so when my son signed up to be a Marine, it's pretty intense. A lot of you have had kids go into the military and you watch your kids sign on the dotted line and, and essentially sign their lives away to the government. And I watched him take his oath. And I didn't know what the military oath was. And if you had asked me before I watched him take it, I would have thought that he was given an oath to the country or an oath to the military, to the Marine Corps, loyalty to the flag. And I was so blown away standing in that room in the recruiting office, watching him take that oath when he said to defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic. I was stunned. Again, this was what I was doing back then. It was I was involved in Convention of States and I didn't understand this. And to watch somebody take that oath and to watch oh, my baby, my little boy, take that oath and say that he would die defending the Constitution, it took my breath away. And when I watched him do that, what I thought to myself is, if he's willing to sign on the dotted line, that he's willing to give his life to defend that Constitution, then I will never quit. That I didn't serve my country the way he's willing to serve his country, that this is my service. That I have given an oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and I will never quit. 
And this is the method that the founders gave us. And the only question is not whether it can be done. It's not whether it would work. The founders have already proved that we can do this as a people. They've done it. We've had, by the way, 41 interstate conventions in American history. We know how to do this. The only question is, do we have the fortitude to do it? Do we stand in the shoes of the framers of the Constitution? Do we stand, are we worthy of standing in the shoes of the founders, the men and women and families who fought so that we have the right to be here today? Do we have the willpower to preserve the constitutional republic that they gave us? And I think that's the question facing us today. So I would tell you, yes, the country's coming apart. Yes, it's a good thing because it can and it should drive us back to federalism. And if we want to exist for another 250 years, we're going to have to figure out how to get along with each other in a country where we don't really like each other. I personally believe not only can we do that, but we will do that. And when I come here to Hawaii, look, you guys are a very blue state. And so what that means, if I travel around the country, if people are thinking about you, they're like, huh. Hawaii, forget it. That's a blue state, right? I hear that about New Jersey. I hear it about New York. I hear it about Illinois. There's a whole bunch of states. I hear it about California. But what I will tell you as a person who's traveled to every one of those places and every blue state in the country, that there are patriots just like you in every one of those states. And the reason that I keep coming back here to Hawaii is because I won't write any state off. I'm not writing Hawaii off. I don't care if you have super majorities in the legislature that are blue, it doesn't matter. Things change over time. California was a very Republican state. It's now a blue state. By the way, Florida was a very much of a swing state. It is now a very red state. And we have this myopic view that whatever we're living in right now is how it's always been and how it will always be. That's not the case. I'm gonna close with one more very hopeful thing. I hope it will give you as much hope as it gives me and then we'll take questions. You know, as an organization, we do a lot of polling. And the reason that we do polling, we work with Robert Cahaley of the Trafalgar Group. He's America's most accurate pollster. He's a really good friend of mine. I'll be with him on election night out at Daily Wire out in Tennessee. And the reason I do so much polling, we do so much polling is I travel a lot. And I love and respect the American people, you guys. And you guys tell me what you think all the time. And I feel like from hanging out with you guys, and living with you guys and breaking bread with you guys that have a pretty good feel for what the American people think. When I'm on TV, if you ever see me on TV or hear me on the radio, what I hope you hear, what I hope you think when you hear me is, man, that's what I would say if I had a chance to be on the radio. Like that's what I'm thinking. Because what I'm trying to do when I'm on the radio or TV or in some podcast is I'm trying to speak for you. Because I feel like the, the pundits, and, and I'm, by the way, this is right wing or left wing. They don't know you guys. They don't hang out with you guys. They're in their studio somewhere in New York or wherever they are, and they don't get out and they're not with regular people. So I feel like I know you and I have a responsibility to represent you when I'm doing that. And then what I want to do is take what I think you think because you're telling me, and then we want to poll test that. Am I right? Or is this just anecdotal? And the answer is most of the time, I feel like I pull something, I know what the results are gonna be most of the time. Occasionally, I'm surprised. This is the biggest surprise to me of 2022, of all of our polling. In almost every poll, not everyone, but in almost every poll on almost every issue, 
the most conservative people in America are 18 to 24 years old. Really? Yeah. Now I see some skeptics in the audience and that's reasonable because that blows my mind. And so I want, I want to tell you specific polling. We had a poll that came out this week. Somebody who was in the audience came up to me and said they heard me on John Solomon on Just the News this morning. And I was talking about some of this polling. We did a poll and we asked, have Democrats done what it takes to have your confidence to get your vote in, in 2022? And then there's something in polling, you get what's called the top line, those are the results. So it's like 65, 68% of Americans said no to that, right? And then after you get the top line, you look at what's called the crosstabs. And crosstabs are what break the polls out in different categories, by age, by race, by gender, by party affiliation. And so when I looked at the numbers, and I looked at the numbers for the youngest cohort, 18 to 24, over 90% of them said no to that question. The Democrats have not done what it takes to earn my vote, over 90%. In that 65 plus, which you would think would be the most conservative, that number was like 60%. Like, so it's a radical swing, it's completely different. Here's another one that'll blow your mind. I just want you to understand this is real and it's across every phenomenon you can imagine. So you know, 18 to 24 year old, all into the LGBT thing stuff right there. I like live and let live. It's all cool. Whatever people want to do, it's their own business. At least that's what I thought until I pulled it. And we pulled that a couple of weeks ago. And the poll question is, do you think that we should, that, that society or states or the country should prohibit treating uh, with drugs to prevent uh, puberty, puberty blockers or surgeries on minors? Do you think that should be prohibited? The highest group of people who said it should be prohibited, the highest percentage, over 90%, 18 to 24-year-olds. Right? This is mind-blowing, isn't it? Right? Here's another one. The young people in this country, I would, my opinion would be normally really young people, I would think, generally speaking, right, are going to say, uh, we're environmentalists and we should ban fracking and we need the new green deal and we should have electric cars that run on fairy dust and all this stuff that they believe, right? That's what I would think. So we did a poll question, do you think that the United States should exploit its own natural energy reserves and drill more for oil and gas? The highest percentage cohort saying yes, we should do that were 18 to 24 year olds. So I want you to have hope. I want you to know that there is a generation coming up that is the most conservative generation living in the United States of America today. It's not the old people. It's not the Gen Xers. It's not the middle-aged people. It's not the baby boomers. It's literally Gen Z, 18 to 24. So you should be encouraged by that, but I want to give you a warning about that. As a conservative, or if you're a Republican and you're working in party politics, those are your people to lose. See, because they believe like you already, but they're not Republicans. They mostly don't identify as Republicans. A lot of them still identify as Democrats or independents or libertarians, but they do not generally identify as Republicans. And this is my warning for the Republican Party, for Rep if you're a Republican official, or you're running to be a Republican elected, is that you need to learn how to communicate with those people in the way that they communicate. 
You know, I like to make a joke about the Republican Party. And I, I've been an independent for many years, so I can joke about all the parties. And uh, here's how the Republican Party works with young people. It's very impressive. They say, if you will dress like an old person, we would like you to come to our old people events <laughs> where we're gonna do old people stuff and it's gonna be really boring for you and you can stand in the back of the room and arrange the cookies and maybe we'll have one of you come up and lead the Pledge of Allegiance as your honored position and then if you stick around until you're old, we'll let you do some of the real stuff. This is how the Republican Party treats young people. It's horrifying to me. And so I will tell you, we have to flip that on its head. If you want these people to come in and do the things that we believe need to be done in this country, they already believe like you do. We have to give them the respect that they deserve. We have to treat them like I wanted to be treated when I was 18 or 20 or 22 years old. We have to give them responsibility. We have to give them authority and we have to let them lead. One last thing, for those of us that are older, we screwed this up real bad, right? It's, it's on us. And sometimes I think we get a little bit self-righteous. Oh, I'm a great patriot, right? I'm super pro-life and I'm pro-American. I love the flag and I love the constitution and I'm 60 years old and on my watch, this country's gone to hell. On our watch, this country's gone to hell. Well, we're worried about raising a family or having our job or building our wealth or whatever we've done. So if you're a young person and you're 18 to 24 and you're looking at people like us, you're like, I'm not so sure I want to follow you. <laughs> and that's not irrational. And so we have to know this. So the country's coming apart. I'm very hopeful because I think it can take us back to the founding. And we need to look to these young people coming up who have the right values and bring them in and embrace them and elevate them. And I believe we're gonna save the country. So thanks for having me tonight. And I'm happy to take questions. Thanks. Thank you guys. All right. Okay, so the best part, you guys are way smarter than me. So you'll ask questions about all the things that I haven't thought about. So we're gonna take questions from the audience. Mark, you wanna bring the microphone around? Maybe some people don't have as big a mouth as I do. Brett has a microphone. There we go. And I'll have one. Yes, ma'am. So I hear what you're saying about statistics. Yep. Where are these statistics coming from? How can I research them? What is the poll? I really want to see the numbers. Yeah. Because I study statistics yep. and I understand how they can be manipulated. Yep. I'm going to tell you out here, my experience is not what you're saying with the children, which terrifies me even more. And I want to have hope and I want to have faith. Yep. Obviously, that's what I'm fighting for, right? Yep. And I want to inspire and I want to make that change. But what I'm hearing from you is not the reality that I'm facing right now currently. So I'm in the school systems. I'm yep. talking to the students. I'm literally talking to the parents. Yep. And it is terrifying what is coming out. Um, I wish I could agree with you and just be 100%. So I just, I need to get this. I need to yeah. research what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So all the polls that I'm telling you, you can find at conventionofstates.com. Click on the press icon. And then what you want to do, if you really want to dig into it, is that's going to bring up like a summary press release. And then in there, you're going to see a link to the Trafalgar full report. And you click on that, and then you can look at all those crosstabs. And the way the polls are done so that you know, because I think how you ask the question really matters. You can kind of manipulate polls if you ask the question in a way that is leading to an answer. Trafalgar won't do that because they worry about their national reputation. 
but you could judge for yourself because you could look at those questions yourself. And then if you look at the poll, what you're gonna wanna do in the full report is scroll all the way to the bottom and that's where you'll see all the cross tabs. Now here's what I'll tell you about Trafalgar. 2016, 2018, 2020, 2021, the most accurate pollster in America. The only guy that predicted Trump's victory, DeSantis's victory before anybody else. He got Youngkin right in Virginia. And so this is a guy that's very accurate in his polling. The way the polling works, just to give you a little bit more detail without going into too much and boring everybody because you're the data geek, yeah. uh, is that he pulls a sample of a minimum of 1,000 people. The average national poll is 500. He doesn't believe that's a big enough sample to get an accurate poll. Now, 1,000 sounds like a small amount, and what he does is if he feels like he's getting a weird result, he'll do that two or three times to make sure he's getting a consistent result with different samples. But that's how the polling's done. All the data is there, all the methodology is there, so you could take a look at that yourself. And one of the things I think we need to be really careful about, remember how I said, when you look at your own period in history through your own eyes, you only see what's right in front of you. And so you're, not get, you're getting this amplified effect of whatever you're looking at. Like that's what's going on because that's what I'm looking at. That's evidence, that's anecdotal evidence. And the way you get beyond anecdotal evidence is to go broader into the data. So I could tell you almost the opposite thing, which is I spend a lot of time with kids that are so good that it's like, there's no problem in America. You know, the kids that are my interns at COS, they graduated from Hillsdale. Uh, they graduated from Liberty University. They're the conservative kids we gather from campuses all over the country. So my experience with young people today is like, oh, why do I have to worry? These kids are all awesome. And that's why I have to go broader in the data to look, because that's just what I live in every day. We got to look at a broader data set than just what we experience every day. And by the way, it's going to vary from culture to culture, city to city, school system to school system. You know, if you come to Texas and you're in Austin, you're going to meet a lot of kids that probably have the same value sets that you're seeing, right? But if you move one county outside of Austin, where I live in Williamson, the kids are exactly the opposite. These are well church kids, they grew up in great families, they have values that you and I would recognize. So we always have to be really careful about looking at what's in, right in front of us and generalizing from that. All right, the next question is from Cynthia. Hey, Cynthia. Hi, um, I run uh, Moms for Liberty. Yes, I love you. I love Moms for Liberty. Yep, I love that group too, great group. So, uh, what I wanna say that's really different, um, is that the pedagogy inside the the schools is so different than it was in the 60s and the 70s. Absolutely. We still had some positivity and yep. some love of America. These kids um, that are starting in kindergarten, uh, they're being taught that America is toxic, yep. that love of America is toxic. Yep. And so when you go outside of the schools, you, you get those negative answers. Yep. So so we're dealing with, with, with a beast here. Because, Agreed. You know, they, they put 200 Marxist professors tenure them, and then they grew from there. Right. So we have a different environment. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So, like, I mean, to go even further back, this comes from uh, Gramsci, is where this is Marxism a la Gramsci. Uh, Gramsci was an Italian Marxist, a fascist. Uh, they should have killed him as part of the, I mean, sound, that sounds really radical, but they put him in prison. Uh, and when they put him in prison, he actually wrote notebooks from prison where he lays out, you guys have heard of the long march through the institutions. So 
the, the, what the Marxists did, and this is Gramsci, they were really frustrated because they couldn't figure out why Marxism wasn't just working. What most people don't know about Marx is Marx was not proposing a system of government or even a system for society. Marx said Marxism is just inevitable. It's just going to happen. This is the natural progression of society. So he never had a plan for how to make it happen in society. Gramsci, many years later, becomes frustrated because Marxism hasn't been widely adopted. And he decides that taking the entire culture is what you have to do. And so he coins the term the long march through the institutions. In other words, we got to take over the schools, we got to take over the arts, we got to take over all the cultural institutions, and we got to put people in there who believe the way we believe. He influences something called the Frankfurt School out of Germany. A lot of wealthy people send from America send their kids over to Germany. They get educated this in this because they think Germany is so efficient and operates so well as an industrial machine. And then they bring this philosophy back to the United States and it makes its way through our institutions. And what we're seeing now is, I, I would argue, is the tail end of that. And this is one reason I'm a little bit hopeful, Cynthia, maybe more hopeful than you are. I think one of the reasons the leftists are so wild in this country right now is because they understand that they're at the end of the march through the institutions. So the 60s radicals were really where it starts to hit its stride and they start to get all these professors that come out of there. Those are the people running our universities today, the radicals of the 1960s. Right? And so that's Bill Clinton is the first president to come out of that era. Obama is a follow on from that. Uh, Biden comes out of that era. But they're all starting to age out. And one of the things that you see is when the beast is dying, it gets a little wild, right? It's going crazy and it lashes out. And I think that's where we're at. It doesn't solve the problem. The, the pedagogy inside the universities, inside all the way down to kindergarten is bad and rotten. I'm not sure we can fix our schools. And so I'm of a split mind about this. If you have to have your kids in the schools, then my argument would be, you damn well better be in the schools warring on behalf of your kids. My kids came through public school, yeah. My kids came through public schools and they were okay because they had a good foundation and we were in there all the time. And we were going to war and we were fighting over curriculum. And so even when the curriculum was bad, the, the principal knew and the teachers knew the Mecklers were gonna be in there and we were gonna raise hell, right? And my son, who's really smart at a real young age, he was gonna raise hell. And we taught our kids to raise hell in school. We taught them, if you're right, be polite and raise hell. Like, don't, don't put up with the stuff that they're saying. Anti-American stuff, you say no, right? And so you can be inside the schools and fighting for the schools. Uh, I, you know, I heard today or yesterday, I didn't realize this, you guys don't elect your school boards, right? Man, that's a really bad thing. So I don't know how to fix that. I need to talk to you all about that. In the states, which is, I, I've never heard of a state where you don't elect school boards. In, in most of the states, we're fighting for the school boards. And so a lot of people are running for school board. Who appoints the school boards? <laughs> Jeez. Oh, what a mess. Uh, I'll come back and we'll talk about that. I'm going to have an idea what to do. Uh, but we got to fight for the schools. And I think one of the biggest ways we can fight for the schools, just to be blunt, is just to be a royal pain in the backside. Right? So, you know, when the teachers, when the curriculum is bad, 
when the teachers are teaching this anti-American garbage, when they're teaching this sexual garbage, then we as parents and grandparents and even people who are just citizens with no kids in school have an obligation to go in there and protect the kids. Right? I mean, who are we if we won't protect our kids? And so I think we have an obligation to do that and to fight for that. And then I would say this, if you can, if you have kids, get them the hell out of those places, right? That would be my first choice. And I have people tell me all the time, look, it's really hard, I work, we don't make enough money to put them in private school. I get all that, I really do. And I don't mean to minimize the burden of doing that. But the question that I always ask parents who say that is, what is it not worth doing for your kids? Right? Is there something you can tell me? I wouldn't do that for my kids because it's too hard. And the, every parent pretty much says, well, there's nothing. I'm like, well, then get your kids the hell out of those schools. And so we're going to, I think we're going to have to break that system and crush it to rebuild it. One of the things I'd be in favor of at the level of the federal government, and I think we could do this uh, with the Convention of States, is I, I don't think they should be able to have these untaxed huge endowments. I mean, let's tax those endowments at 90% or something. Let's take their power away. So I agree with you, it's a serious problem. Convention of States isn't necessarily the fix for that problem, that's a cultural fix. Hi Mark, uh, thank you so much for your talk today. I just wanted to make a comment because I know that I have this fear and I kind of share this fear with a lot of people my age too. Yep. And that's that it's not even the government that we have to fight anymore but the people who run the government, which is the people with money, like right. the banks. Yep. So even if we were to fight the government, the people with money have so much power that it wouldn't even really make a difference. So I guess it's like, how? what can we do to fight those people? And how do we know that like, the convention of states can take the power back from both the government, the people with money, and give it back to the people down here? Okay, so I want to make a distinction here. I mean, first of all, as long as there have been people, there have been powerful people with money, right? So, and this is really important, powerful people with money is not a problem, per se. It's power, powerful people with money that do bad things with that money, and also, it's this weird uh, joining of forces between companies and the government. This is super unhealthy, and it was not intended to be this way. You know, so we've got this corporate oligarchy, essentially, in our country right now. Honestly, never thought I'd see this because, I, you know, I remember when I was your age and I was growing up, it'd be like, well, the left hates the big corporations and conservatives were like good with it because it's business. And now it's actually become the opposite, right? Because why? Because the big corporations are now in bed with the government and enforcing what the government wants. So the answer to it is really the marketplace which is the patriot economy. And this is what I call it. It is rising and it is part of the great decoupling. If I could today, uh, I would stop doing business with every company that does political things that I don't like. That's not practical in America right now. You know, if you want a bank, good luck finding banks that bank the way you would want a company to operate. Our job is to exercise our consumer power to the extent we can. And this patriot economy is rising right now. I'll give you an example. So our company, our organization banks with Chase Bank. I don't trust Chase Bank. I don't like Chase Bank. I don't want to be with Chase Bank. And so I've been hunting for banks that I could use for Convention of States. And we're now in the process of moving banks. 
There's a bank out of the Southwest called SunWest Bank. The main owner is a guy by the name of Eric Hovde. Eric is a conservative politician from Wisconsin. I know him personally. It's a great high-tech bank. There's no way this bank's ever going woke. So we do millions of dollars of business a year through our bank. We're gonna pull our business and we're gonna move it to a bank that's conservative. And what I really want out of industry is I don't even necessarily want them to be conservative. Just leave us the hell alone, right? Just get out of politics, make a good soda, <laughs> right? I don't really care about your politics. I don't wanna know about your politics. I don't want your politics imposed on me. As conservatives, we have not been good at imposing pain on corporations that go woke, and we have to get better at that. How do you know if a bank's going woke? All you have to do is li literally research any bank and see if they're doing ESG, which is this environmental social governance, right? And they have this thing that they call a stakeholder, right? So it used to be that a corporation's only obligation was to maximize profits for its shareholder. That was literally a legal obligation. It's a fiduciary duty. Now what they say is there are other stakeholders in a corporation. This is an absurd legal fiction. And in my opinion, it's a breach of their fiduciary duty. They're saying, oh, well, if we have a bank and the bank's in Honolulu, then we have an obligation to the citizens of Honolulu. No, that's not true. They have an obligation to their shareholders. They have no obligation to the community. They might want to do charity in the community and that's fine, but that's not an obligation. And so what we need to do is push back against all this ESG stuff. That's a big place that it starts. And there are rating organizations online you can go look at. You can look up any company and see if they're doing all this crazy ESG stuff. And we have to push back against it. I wanna give you one great example of it who I support very strongly because of what they're doing. <clears throat> and that's Daily Wire. And I don't know how many of you are subscribers to Daily Wire. Like, even if you don't listen to Daily Wire, you should be a subscriber. What Ben Shapiro and Jeremy Boring and the guys at Daily Wire are doing is they are the point of the spear in the culture wars. And as soon as they started doing it, I became a subscriber and I pay my money to them gladly every month. Anybody see the Jeremy's Razors commercial? Do you guys know what that is? There's a few. If you haven't seen it, I'm gonna tell you, this is the greatest commercial ever made in the history of television. <laughs> had the audacity to say something incredibly outrageous on the air one day. He said, men are men and women are women and one can't be the other. And somebody on Twitter freaked out on this and complained to Harry's Razors and Harry pulled all their advertising from Daily Wire. And Daily Wire said, look, it's a free country, pull all your advertising if you want. But Harry's Razors spoke out against Daily Wire and said, you know, these guys, are, they don't share our values and they're bad people. And, and so what they decided to do was launch their own razor company. And so instead of, instead of Harry's Razors, you have Jeremy's Razors, right? And I love that these guys are media guys. What are they doing launching a razor company? But trust me, when you see the commercial, you're gonna understand what they're doing. And so they launched this razor company and in three days, they have 80,000 plus razor subscriptions. That division of the company is now $150 million in value. That one division of the company, uh, two days after they launched the razors, across from the Harry's Razors office in New York City, they put giant billboards that say, I hate Harry's.com. It's so beautiful. And I know Jeremy, and so I wrote to Jeremy when that happened, and I said, Jeremy, I signed up. 
I'm so proud to be a subscriber. In fact, you're welcome to charge me three times as much and you don't even have to send me a razor. <laughs> right, because the deal is we've got to support companies that are willing to do this. They're gonna have a whole line of uh, consumer products coming out of the Daily Wire. I'm gonna buy all of them. I'll be honest with you. I mean, this is just a serious fact. I don't like the razor as much. I'm being honest with you. I've told them that. Like, you guys need to improve your razors. They're not as good. I shaved with it this morning. I don't love it. I'll keep shaving with it. <laughs> right? Because I'm going to be a Patriot consumer, and I, I don't care if I like Harry's razors better. I'm not giving those guys a damn cent of my money when there's an alternative. So that's how we fix that problem. To learn more, visit conventionofstates.com slash pod.